So we have been in a series on discipleship, and this is actually our last week in this series. And then next week, August 1st, we're going to kick off a brand new series that will take us through most of the fall, uh, probably through the end of October. We're going to walk through the book of Titus together. And we're going to take a few weeks to kind of come over and talk about elders in a sidebar. And uh, that will pertain to us and some other things we're doing in the fall. But we're excited to walk through Titus. And this end of our discipleship series is a great bridge between talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a bridge between Titus, which is considered a pastoral epistle, a letter from Paul, to someone who was called specifically in this letter to establish healthy churches. And so Titus is all about what is a healthy church? What does the family of God look like? And so we're ending this week by talking about fellowship as the context of discipleship. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, if you have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first three verses. Now Ephesians breaks up into two big sections. Chapters 1 to 3 are primarily about doctrine theology, belief. And then chapters four to six are primarily about your conduct and your life in light of the doctrine in chapters one to three. So Paul is basically saying, hey, look, here's the glorious truth of who God is, who you are in light of that, what Jesus has done. Here's the good news of the gospel. And then in chapter four, he says, I therefore... And that therefore is, anytime you see therefore, you ask, what is it there for? What's he pointing back to? And in this case, he's pointing back to all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then what he's telling you is not just what comes in verses 1, 2, or 3, but he's actually going to extend that therefore all the way through chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's going to hit on some crucial points in the Christian life. But this morning, we're going to look at what he begins with there in chapter 4. So read with me Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, this is your word and we are thankful. Would you speak to our hearts? And as you speak, God, I pray that we would know that it's you. I pray that this word would unify our church family this morning. And it would call us to a greater commitment to one another in light of what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we see three things in these three verses here in Ephesians 4. And the first is this, living in light of Jesus. Living in light of Jesus. Notice what he says here in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a way that's worthy of your calling. Live in a way that corresponds to the thing that God has called you to. Now, what does he mean, your calling? What what calling is he he talking about here in in Ephesians 4? Well, if if you have a copy, just turn back one page and, and read Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, and you can see some incredible truths about who you are. Read just a couple verses in Ephesians 1 with me. Check out verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. You're, You're blessed. He's blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. You see a theme here. You're blessed, you're saved, you're redeemed, you're adopted. You're, you're chosen to be holy and blameless. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about uh, you, every single one of you at some point in your life, were dead in your sins. Was separated from God, but in Christ Jesus, because God's rich in mercy, he's raised us up. He has saved us from death and given us life in Jesus. Because of the calling we have, this calling to be blessed, this calling to know God, this calling to be in Christ Jesus. But then the second part of Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, is primarily about our calling into the one new man that Christ is creating. One new humanity, one new people. It's no longer Jew versus Gentile. One race versus another race, no longer rivalries within humanity, but in Christ, we are all one people group, all in need of the same grace, all approaching God in the same way. These are just some of the things Paul walks through in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And then now he's saying, because of that calling, because of your calling in Jesus, because of your gospel calling that you didn't earn, you didn't initiate, but God has graciously given to you. You ought to walk in a way that's worthy of that. We ought to live in light of Jesus. See, the gospel forces me to see myself as I really am. The gospel forces me to see myself as I really am. You can't have illusions about yourself and come to true terms with the gospel. Because if you have illusions about yourself, I think they tend to go one of two ways. One is, I'm quite a lovable person. I'm not so bad. I, we all have problems, right? I mean, yeah, I've, I've had some hard times. I've had some dark times. But, you know, I mean, don't we all? I mean, I'm not really that hard to love. That, that's one way we can tend to drift with illusions of ourselves. But the other side is, is well, I'm, I'm really quite unlovable. I mean, there's no, there's no way I could, be, I could be loved. There's no way I could ever have a shot at having a relationship with a holy God. God would never love me. No one would ever love me. My life is worthless. So if you have illusions of yourself in one of those two categories and you, you're so far to that end, the gospel forces you to be honest about yourself. It forces you to see yourself as you really are. So on the one hand, yeah, you, you are sinful and broken and weak and in need of a Savior. But God has provided the Savior for you. You don't have any illusions about yourself this morning. The gospel's good news for you because you need a Savior. This is what Jesus has done for us. The truth about me is that I'm deeply in need of Jesus. That's the truth about me. That's the truth about every single one of us in this room. That's the truth about every single one of our kids that just walked out to go hear a message from Scripture. The truth about every single one of us is that we are deeply in need of Jesus. But Paul is saying, because of this calling, because of this truth in the gospel, there is a right way for you to live. And the first thing he says is humility. See, when I am forced to reckon with the truth about myself, it humbles me. 
I've got to admit my need. I mean, I'm forced to. I'm forced to look at the greatness of who God is, the holiness of God, and immediately say, there's a gap between him and between me. And it humbles me to say, I'm not the center of the universe. But then I'm also humbled because it forces me to say, I'm not the center of the universe, and I can't save myself. I mean, I can't provide a ransom for my life. The only thing this could produce in us is humility to say, I I can't. That's the first step of the Christian life is to recognize brokenness in a sense that you cannot save yourself. And Paul is saying, if we're going to live in light of our calling, if we're going to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that we have in our lives in Jesus, the the first step of that is, he, he says it right there in verse two, with all humility. You can only have a true humility if you see yourself in light of Jesus. Do you see yourself in light of Jesus this morning? Someone who's in desperate need of a savior. So if we're called to live in light of Jesus, to walk worthy of our calling, the second point this morning is to love in light of Jesus. Love in light of Jesus. Notice the way he describes initially what it means to walk worthy of our calling. He doesn't initially, and this has always been amazing to me, when you think of being a Christian, my mind goes towards be holy, spend time with God. Christ has called you to himself. You ought to love him. You ought to worship him. You ought to pray. All those things are right. I mean, absolutely. But that's not the first place Paul goes here in Ephesians 4. He says humility, and then he goes on to describe the way our relationships look. Do you notice that? He, he says, with all humility and gentleness, there's a relational word, with patience, bearing with one another. Oh, okay, he's, he's couching all of this in relationships. The way we walk worthy of our calling in Jesus is we walk with one another. The New Testament has no category for a churchless Christian. There's just no such thing. There is no such thing in the Bible as a churchless Christian because it was so ingrained in the identity of a follower of Christ that they belonged to the family of God, that they were a member of the body of Jesus, that they needed one another. And so Paul is saying here, if you're going to walk worthy of your calling, yeah, that includes humility, and then you've got to be gentle with people and patient with people and bear with one another in love. Let's look at those three aspects. Gentleness, patience, and love. First, gentleness. What does gentleness mean? There's a phenomenal book. We're hopefully going to get a bunch of copies. The publisher said, we'll give them away. It's been so popular. Called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. And he talks about basically this verse in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, where Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, gentleness doesn't mean passivity or weakness. It means strength under control. Not that I'm unable to use my strength, but I'm unwilling to use my strength in a way that's harsh or hurtful. Gentleness doesn't mean you lack strength or you lack a spine. It doesn't mean you're you're just a doormat for people. But when I'm thinking about gentleness, I'm thinking about how I use this word with my kids. Be gentle, be gentle, be gentle. I'm trying to teach that to our youngest daughter right now. Be gentle, be gentle, because she holds me and she just, 
Carrie doesn't let the kids touch their, her face. She's like, that's just a slippery slope, and they're going to hurt. They're going to gouge my eyes out. But I just, I'm like, hey, if this is a way I can show affection and I can one-up mommy, I don't have many of those ways. Come on, you can grab and pinch and squeeze. But Anila just has no limits, and so she's grabbing, and I'm con- every time I hold her, I'm going, be gentle, be gentle. And she's just learning just to smack me in the back of the head. Be gentle, be gentle. Or I think of walking through a store with my kids. Right? Walking down the aisles like this. Doesn't matter what kind of store you're in. You're just walking down the aisles like this. And I'm going, be gentle. Stop. Be gentle with the stuff. We're not, we're, no, we're not opening that. We're not hitting that. We're not breaking that off. The sh- be gentle. Be gen- or, or flowers. We don't, we're not outdoorsy at all. We're not gardeners by any stretch of the imagination. We kill succulents in our house, the unkillable plants. But the very few flowers we have seem to get picked as soon as they bloom. No, be gentle. Don't touch it. Be gentle. Don't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Be gentle. Being gentle doesn't mean they don't have the strength to pluck the flower. It means that even though you have the strength, you need to know that if you're not careful with it, you will crush it. Being gentle with one another means we treat others the way Jesus has treated us in the sense that we don't crush people who fail because Christ does not crush us. There's a book by a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. It comes from, I think, the book of Isaiah. Was talking about the Messiah to come and a bruised reed he will not break. When you're bruised, battered, suffering, hurting, in pain, thinking you're on your last leg to stand on, you're not crushed by the Savior. He meets you there. And we can only be gentle, not harsh or hurtful, but gentle towards one another if we understand that this is how God has been toward us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke's easy, my burden's light. This doesn't mean Jesus is passive. This doesn't mean he just ignores our sin. No, because after he said this, he still continued to go to the cross to die to pay for our sin. So we don't need to take this to mean, hey, Jesus is just going to ignore and just what That's how we ought to be with each other. Passive, spineless, letting things go. No, no, no. It means we don't crush people while they're in the process of what God's doing in their life. Just as Jesus doesn't crush us when we're weary from the journey of life. But he actually says, come here. Let me help give you life while it feels like you're empty of it. So Paul says a walk worthy of our calling means we walk with gentleness and with patience. With patience. I can be patient with others as they're in process because I'm in process too. You know the word for patience all throughout Scripture? It it actually means like, I think we talked about it last year. We did a series as we were coming out of COVID, so I don't know how many people heard it, through the fruit of the Spirit. And I was going back this week looking at some of Al's message on patience. And one of the words that Scripture uses is long-suffering. Patience means you're willing to suffer for a long time. And it, it, 
the, the Hebrew word, it's really fascinating. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but I'm really good at reading Hebrew scholars who write in English. And they say the word literally means something like long-nosed, like you have long nostrils, right? Because, because why? Well, when you're mad and you're blowing steam out of your nostrils and you're breathing heavy, and, and it's, it's trying to paint this picture of like, it takes a long time for God to get to that point. God is patient, God is patient with us. Not demanding today what God knows will take a lifetime. So we, to walk worthy of our calling, ought not to demand from one another what we know will take a lifetime. I mean, don't you know that you're not where you wanted to be today? Right? Don't you know there's areas in your life that you say, I've got to grow. I'm tired of not growing here. I'm, I'm sad about it. I'm a little ashamed that I haven't grown here. I'm embarrassed a little bit. It's going to take a lifetime for you to grow, and even then you won't be perfect. That's not the goal. The goal is to be dependent on Jesus. And so how do we walk worthy of our calling? Paul says with patience. Don't demand perfection from people because that's not what God demands from you, but give grace for people to fail. Give grace for people to sin because it's going to happen. I was talking to our daughter this week who's going to first grade, and we were trying to talk through what are you excited about, what are you scared about, what are you looking forward to, what are you not like, and she's just a bundle of joy and energy. She's creative, she's off the walls, and she said, I just, I'm scared I'm going to get in trouble, and I said, you don't need to be scared of that. She said, why? And I said, because it's going to happen. So she, she buries her head and, you said I'm going to get in trouble. I said, yeah, I did. Don't have the expectation that you're not going to get in trouble when you go to school. You're going to be there for 180 days. You're going to get in trouble. It's not something to be scared of. Let's set our expectations now on how we're going to act when that comes. Hey, guess what? If you're coming to a church because you think, oh, I finally found a place where I'm not going to be challenged. I'm not going to be offended. I like the worship. I like the preaching. I like this pastor. I like the kids program. I like that it's small. Or you go to another church, you say, I like that it's big. If you come to church for any of those reasons, you're going to get frustrated and that's going to let you down. And then you're going to leave and go find a church for another reason. And then that reason will let you down. You just need to set your expectations that like, there's going to be some flop sermons that are going to be preached. There's going to be some worship sets that don't meet your standard. There's going to be some people walk through our doors that are going to offend you. And there's going to be times you offend other people. The question is not, will you be offended? Will you be let down? Will you be disappointed? Will you be sinned against? The question is, are you willing to be patient? As people are learning to follow Jesus, are you willing to be patient in the process? And do you know that we can only do this because we were walking worthy of our calling? This is how God is toward us. In Exodus 34, Moses says, God, let me see your glory. He says, you can't see all of it, but I'm gonna hide you and I'm gonna pass by you. And when he passes by, here's it says, the Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Don't let anyone tell you the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. This is the Old Testament right here. He says, I'm slow to anger. I'm slow to anger. Psalm 103 verse eight repeats it. In fact, it's repeated 
all over the Old Testament. What's quoted there in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger. If that is how God is toward us, we ought to set our expectations to be like that toward one another. Patient. And then the last one is love. If we're loving others in light of Jesus, it means gentleness, it means patience, and it means love. Love's the aim for how we relate to one another. But what is love? Well, here's a couple of points about what love is. Love aims for the good of others. Love is not blind affirmation. But love is aimed at the good. You are unloving if you let your kids do whatever they want, whenever they want. You're telling me you're going to let your kid run into traffic on Shallowford Road because they're running that way, and you say, I don't want to stop. I mean, I don't want to stop them. I want to love them. I want to let them just express whatever's in their heart. You will do that to their death. There's just no other way to say that. It doesn't just blindly affirm whatever's in it. It's for the good of others. But when you love for the good of others and you do it gently and with patience, that doesn't mean you impose on them. Al will sometimes say to me in a meeting, he'll say, what you're saying is exactly right, but woo me a little more. I mean, make me want to do it. Don't just tell me it's right and say, you can get on or get off. Right? So if you're only aiming at the good of others, you can do that in a wrong way. Where you come and you say, right and wrong, choose you this day. (laughs) Will you do what's right? I'm telling you right. Or or there's a loving way that does it with gentleness and with patience. But the point is, love is aimed at the good of others. But here's some other points. Love, Love aims for the good of others through commitment. Do you know the way God primarily relates to people in the scriptures is through covenant commitment? Saying, I'm I'm making my covenant with you that I will not forsake you. I will not give you up. Not a contract that says you uphold this, I uphold this. If either side breaches contract, we can cut relationship and move on. No, 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 that's not covenant. Covenant is till death. Only death could step. Only death could do this. No, I'm committed to you. Never give, that is love. So love is for the good of others and expresses itself through commitment. So how are you expressing your love for other people through commitment? Talk about church membership. And maybe you ask, why should I join? Why should I become a member? What's gonna be different, right? When I come, I give, I serve sometimes. What's gonna be different if I'm a member? What will be different is your covenant commitment to a group of people. It's the difference between living together your entire life, dating with someone that should be your spouse. It's the difference between that and saying, we need to get married because I want other people to see that I'm committed to you. I want to wear a ring that shows people I'm committed to you. You say, well, what's the difference? We could do all that without doing the, yeah, you can. And you can always have an easy out. That's just the truth. You could always have an easy out. But if you commit, make a covenant commitment, that expresses your love that you're saying, I want witnesses to see that I'm making a covenant commitment to you. Because that is exactly what God has done with us. So love aims for the good of others. It aims for the good of others through commitment. Over the long haul, do you see what he says here? Bearing with one another in love. Well, that's encouraging. Bearing with one another. 
Paul doesn't have any um, illusions about how difficult community is. He does not paint it as a smooth <laughs> boat ride. I mean, as an easy journey. He, he has no issue with calling it exactly what it is. Hey, guess what? You need to love each other, and at times it's going to feel less like happiness and more like bearing with one another. There's going to be times this is hard, but that's where the commitment comes in. That's where the covenant commitment comes in when you don't give up when it's hard because that's exactly how God treats us. We're committed through the long haul, but love aims for the good of others through commitment and sacrifice. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the good of others? To give up comforts, pleasures, my own well-being. Am I willing to give up my time, my money, my energy? Am I willing to lay down my life? So love aims for the good of others through commitment and sacrifice. And we see this in Scripture. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, read that word as rebels against God. While we were rebels against God, God loved us. Amazing. And he showed his love in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How did God show his love primarily? Sacrifice. Giving up convenience. Philippians 2 says giving up glory, humbling himself so that he could learn obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the way God has shown his love toward us. And he's saying, I want that kind of love to mark your church communities. If you're going to walk worthy of your calling in the gospel, if you're going to claim the gospel and Jesus as your identity, here's how you ought to walk. You ought to love these people that I've loved in the same way that I've loved them. You ought to aim for their good. You ought to be committed to them. You ought to sacrifice for them. We've looked at living in light of Jesus, which is walking worthy of our calling. We looked at loving in light of Jesus. But look at verse 3. We'll talk about unity in light of Jesus. So if the second point is about how we relate to one another, verse 3 kind of zooms out and says, so what should the community look like as a whole? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice something right away. He says maintain the unity of the Spirit, not obtain the unity of the Spirit. We do nothing to force unity upon ourselves as a church. Like we don't force unity based on seasons of life or you don't, you don't earn the unity that God gives us through the Holy Spirit. But it says to maintain it. What unifies us is God's work in our hearts. And he says, look around and notice the unity, but he says, you got to be eager to maintain it. Now, what does that mean, maintain the unity? It means don't lose it. Don't, don't let go of it. Don't presume upon it, but keep it. Keep it strong. Keep it healthy. Maintain unity. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. One way to maintain it is to make it visible and tangible. One way is to make it visible and tangible. H how do you make unity with other people tangible? I mean, unity, have you ever felt really unified with something? Maybe you played sports. On a sports team, you felt unified. Your brothers or sisters on the team around a common mission, common goal. 
the brotherhood. As a friend of mine said recently that I was catching up with, maybe you felt unified in that. Maybe you felt unified in a family situation. Maybe your family was extremely close. And you just knew they had your back always. Unity is often something that's not tangible. It's something that's almost done on the heart level. If you just know that there's a connection, you know that you're thinking the same thoughts, you know that you're after the same thing. But what does it look like for it to become tangible? Well, on a sports team, you go out and you all put on the same uniform. Why is that when there's 22 people on the field and you all are wearing different things? It's going to get confusing after the ball snapped to figure out who's with you and who's not. That, that's one really practical reason a tangible and visible unity matters. If we're going to maintain unity, we've got to make it visible and tangible. But how do we do that? How do we make tangible, how do we make it visible, our humble and gentle and patient, loving commitment to one another? I, I think there's one most obvious answer, and that's church membership. We covenant together to walk together through life and to pursue Jesus together. And if you want to know what church membership looks like at Shalford, we have our covenant We'll have it next week. We're going to do the Lord's table. We have it on our website, and you'll notice that it doesn't just ask things from you, but we actually ask you to be willing to receive because being in a true community doesn't just mean that we ask you to come in and pour out. Right? We're not just saying like, hey, we need you to come serve this many hours a year and make sure you're giving and make sure you're showing up and make sure. We say things like, I commit to giving my time, talents, and treasures and to receive when the church serves me. Because part of being a community is being needed. Other people need you to show up in their lives. Part of our covenant says, I commit to walking and disciple-making relationships with others because they need me and I need them. That's what community looks like. It's not you coming in with all the answers ready to pour out, but it's you ready to pour out and to receive when other people serve you, when other people disciple you and encourage you when you go through a hard season and somebody else shows up with a meal or sends you an Uber gift card. Amen. That's community. It's giving and receiving. You say, how do we make this tangible? You pick up the phone and call somebody this week. You text somebody this week. You go to lunch, coffee, breakfast with somebody this week. You say, hey, we belong to the same church. I see you worshiping on Sundays. I need to know your story. I need to know how to pray for you. I need to know about your family. I need to know what God's doing in your life. And that gives you a chance to live out the humility and the gentleness and the patience and the love as then you're invested in their good and you're saying, I want you to become like Jesus. I want you to become a disciple because that is the context of discipleship. The only way you will grow, and this is what Paul says later in Ephesians 4, is as you're speaking the truth in love to one another. It takes other people to make you a faithful disciple. That's part of the way God's rigged to this whole thing. Is you can't do it on your own. You need other people. So if we're going to be eager to maintain this unity, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I'm going to challenge us this morning that I, I think one of the most practical ways that that looks for us is 
joining and covenanting together as a church. Now, if you're not ready to do that, that's okay. That's not a quick process. Most people who join Shalford as members walk with us for, I'll say, at least six months before they take that step. Why? Because they want to know before you commit. You want to know, is this a place I want to be? What that looks like at Shalford is is three things. We have a, a short questionnaire we want you to fill out that explains, hey, do you know Jesus? Have you been baptized since you've known Jesus? Are you a member at any other churches that we need to know about as we walk through this process so that we can talk to them? And then we lay out our membership covenant and our statement of faith and say, can you agree to these things? Then the second step is we meet together with one of the pastors. And it's not, I told Sam this morning, I said, it's not an interview because interview implies we might hire you, we might not. So that's not what it is. But it's just a chance to ask questions. Hey, do you have any questions? You read this. Do you have any questions about what it means to be a member at Shalford? Hey, we we just want to make sure we're really clear on your story. I mean, we want to celebrate what God's done in your life through saving you and growing you up to this point in your walk with Jesus. So just tell us more about that. We know you wrote some things, but talk to us about it. We want to hear you say it. We want to know as pastors how we can pray for you. So we'll ask you that in that meeting. And then we'll also just share some hopes that we have for all of our members some vision for how you might plug in. See, every member is different. You all bring a different spiritual gift to the table, a different shape, as Rick Warren would say. God has shaped you uniquely to plug into a body to serve and to love and to care for people. (laughs) And so that is exactly what it means to be a member is that you plug into the church family in a way that only you can. And we want to help. That's one of our hopes for members that we help you do that. We help you plug in in a way that only you can. That doesn't just mean do you serve on the worship team or the kids team or the hospital. No, no, no. The way you plug in and serve, your gifting is so much more intricate than that. We want to help you discover that. So this morning, the only application is not become a member of Shalford, but I don't want you to misunderstand me that I think that's the primary step. So I would love, if today is not your day to take that step, I I would love for you to begin praying. God, do I need to make my commitment to this family tangible and visible? I'd just like for you to pray about that. Go on our website, shalford.church slash membership. You can read our our covenants right there. We don't have anything to hide about what we're going to ask you to commit to. It's really simple. I think it's like six points. That's a very tangible way to live unified. But the other way, it's almost more informal and it's almost harder. You gotta walk across the room. You gotta talk to somebody. You gotta get to know them. You gotta make friends, which as adults, right, we live for the first 18 years of our life getting put into a room with 20 to 30 other people and you're forced to be friends with them and that's how you make friends. And then you go to college and you learn this is a little harder, but okay, I can still kind of see it. And then you're in the real world and you go, I'm not sure I know how to make friends. I haven't done it since I was six. Now I'm 26. How do I start a new conversation? What do I do? What do we talk about? We're all in the same boat, so just jump in, okay? We all want friends. We all want people in our life that's just going to take a genuine interest in us. So the, the two applications this morning are, I would love for you to become a member of our family at Shalford. And the other one is, walk across the room and say hey to somebody today. Ask them for their phone number and say, I just want to encourage you and text you. I'd love to go to coffee sometime. I'd love to go to lunch. I just want to get to know you so that we could live out 
this. Use me as an excuse. Hey, Johnny said I have to do this. So I'm just trying to be a good church member here at Shalford and come get to know you. But I want to remind us of what this sermon is about. It's about discipleship. It's about the context of discipleship. We will all grow as disciples if we live in this kind of context where we're living in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we're walking humbly with one another and gently, we're patient with one another. We're bearing with one another in love over the long haul because we need those long haul brothers and sisters through the ups and downs of life. And they need us. This is the vision that Paul gives in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 for a healthy church that we'd be unified in Christ. So what's your step this morning?